hey, we're getting closer to being able to have some sort of meeting together. Um, just want you to know that we, uh, yes, yes, uh, we are, uh, we are going to, we're going to be cautious. We're going to follow the guidelines as best we can. And we want, um, we want to honor all those things that Josh was talking about. And we really do want to be together. Uh, so we should temper our expectations too. I think like the elders, when they came back from Babylon, uh, the second temple was not quite as beautiful as the first temple and uh so we'll come back but it's going to be it's going to be good and uh, we're going to look forward to whatever that looks like and all the while trusting our good god for all of this we're back in mark chapter five this morning and really thankful i just paying attention uh to the sort of the participants online every week and i'm just and i'm just so encouraged by what God is doing by keeping people together. And I know this is not an ideal time and uh, it's not happy for everybody, but everyone's getting together in the best way we know how. And uh, I'm just really encouraged by um, the family life that's going on even, even in, these, in these times. So praise the Lord for what he's doing. We should thank him for that. Um, continuing in Mark 5. Um, one of the things Mark is doing, maybe a primary thing Mark is doing in the Gospels and what the, all of the Gospel writers are doing are, are painting a theological portrait of Jesus. They're using their, their, I, they're using their brush strokes and, and they're, using, they're using paint and they're, they're taking their time to, to, to paint this robust portrait of Jesus Christ. And, you know, for Mark, one of the things that he's doing along with the other gospel writers is that is he is painting a picture that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's God's anointed one. And that he's the son of God. Remember in our, in our creed last week, we saw... Uh, we confess together that the word was made flesh, that he was truly God and truly man. And, and Mark, as he's weaving this, you know, as he's painting this portrait with his words, and as he's, he's, he's giving us this, this image of Jesus in, uh, in his writing, he's, he's showing us that he is uh, the king bringing a kingdom. So we've even subtitled this sermon series the gospel of mark a story about a suffering king jesus is truly god and truly man and, and the king is coming bringing a kingdom and and it's odd because the king comes to and he's taking the infirmities of the weak and we've seen that in in uh in each of our times we've seen healing we've seen that that jesus is a king who takes on the infirmities of those who are sick, like the leper, those who are paralyzed, those who have a sickness that's leading to death, like Peter's mom. And, but when he comes into the, in, into the presence of uncleanness, Jesus doesn't himself become unclean. He takes the infirmities inside himself. He makes the person, the unclean person clean. And he himself with all his power vanquishes the sin, the uncleanness uh, of, of, of what he healed. And we, and we see this, this, this king, you know, he, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God that is the kingdom is, is here, it's come in him. And, and he's showing us in these last few sermons, he has been showing us the power of the kingdom. He calms the storm with just a word. Do you remember? Do you remember the picture of him in the boat and, and uh, he's just sleeping and his disciples say, wake up, we're about to die. And Jesus calms the storm with, with a word. And they ask the question, who then is this? They were very afraid. As he gets to the other, other side of the shore, uh, he, he immediately there meets him a man with a legion of demons. And do you remember how he cast them out? He cast them out with his words. 
And we're meant to ask the same question. What, what kind of person could do this? Well, it's no one else except the, the God-man, the king of the universe, who took on flesh. And all along, as, as Mark is painting the portrait of Jesus, there's sort of a, there's sort of a backdrop on that portrait of, of other people and their responses to him. If you've been paying attention, as you read through the book of Mark, there are different kinds of responses to Jesus. There's the response of hearing and following. There's the response of the crowd of following, but not really believing in Jesus. There's also the response of his family, that when the pressure builds, they think, man, I think he's out of his mind. So even if you were born into a Christian family, even if you were born into Jesus's family, that doesn't make you a Christian. And all of these responses, as Mark paints them with another stroke and another color, he's showing us something. And in today's sermon, he's showing us something about the doctrine of salvation. It's sort of like an introductory course to soteriology. It's Mark is in chapter 5, 21 through 43. He's, he's teaching us how people are saved. Saved by faith alone. They're saved by faith alone. So as we move into uh, Mark chapter 5, 21 through 43, we're going we're gonna to see him in a new setting. And we're going to see um, this story and a story within a story play out. So we're going to see it in, in three movements here. We're going to see the interrupted story of a desperate man. We're going to see the interruption of a desperate and faithful woman. Then we're going to see the interrupted story resolved. The interrupted story of a desperate man, the interruption of a desperate woman, and the interrupted story resolved. So let's start. In verse 21, we see Mark paints for us a new setting. The, he had been on the sea that was hurricane force winds and he, he makes it to the other side and, and now he makes it to uh, the western side of the seashore that we presume is the western side of the seashore without any incident the bible doesn't say any incident happened on the sea and the sea of galilee was calm and you can imagine after such a predicament that the disciples were in before that they had a leisurely row across the lake and you know I could imagine their toes dangling in the water and oh finally at last everything is as it's supposed to be and they end up on the other side of the shore which was the Jewish land again and he had gone to the Gentile land and the question was does his rule extend to the Gentiles or not and well yes it does it's, he has a rule over nature he has a rule even over Gentiles and the and the legion of demons and he comes back to the Jewish land and the response to him is mixed but he always has a crowd around him and you can see that in verse 21 he crossed again in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him he was beside the sea and the crowd in Mark is they're never mentioned really in a positive light. The crowd was, was more of an impediment to those who are trying to get to Jesus and they blocked the way and, and they had uh, you know, they were spectators and uh, they, they were, they were kind of like at a basketball game. And it reminds me, actually, I've been watching the last dance recently of, of the greatest basketball player ever to play the game of basketball. I know that's not controversial at all. My dad, uh, when I was growing up, I was a huge Michael Jordan fan. And when they played Portland Trailblazers in the finals, my, my dad tried to tell me that Clyde Drexler was better than Michael Jordan. And I just, come on, dad. I mean, it's, it's not even close. So sorry for all your Clyde Drexler fans. Anyway, uh, you know, I've been watching The Last Dance. And one of the things I noticed about Michael Jordan and, and an unenviable part of his life was that he always had a crowd around him. He always had people clamoring to get an autograph. And, and a lot of times they couldn't do that. They would just want to touch him, you know, touch his bald, sweaty head. What, what a weird thing to do. But they just, they just wanted to be around him. He, he had this aura about him. If they could just touch him, they, they would have something to tell their kids and grandkids. 
And this is, this is really what Jesus's life was like. He was in a very poor and depressed place. People made next to nothing. They lived hand to mouth, literally. Many of them did. Most of them did. Uh, and, and they were just waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, to overthrow this Roman government so, so that they could be free, just like God wanted to them to be. They knew God had wanted them to prosper. And so they crowded around Jesus, thinking he might be the one. After all, he can make the deaf hear, and he can make the lame walk, and he can raise the dead. Maybe he's the one that's going to overthrow, and they're just crowded around him, just waiting for that. And along comes Jesus, and through the crowd, we notice in verse 22 that there comes a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, that is Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet. And he implored him. He implored Jesus earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. As Jairus was a... The text tells us he's a ruler of the synagogue. He's, uh, if you remember how Mark portrays the, the religious people of that day, of whom Jairus would have been one of them. He, was a, he would have been an elder in the synagogue. He was a leader. He was in charge of the orthodoxy of what went on. It wasn't really like what we have now in uh, professional ministers. It was led by lay people of the synagogue was, and, and uh, Jairus would have, uh, he would have been in charge of the content. He would have been in charge of any orthodoxy. If, if anything went wrong, you know, if anyone was teaching something wrong, he'd be in charge of either dealing with them or kicking them out or, or making sure that what was taught was the right thing and the, and the songs chosen and the, and the sacrifices and all that. He was in charge of, like, he was, he was the operations guy. And he also had a theological um, part of his ministry and and he's a ruler of the synagogue and the rulers of the synagogue you know they're uh, they're some of the religious elite and and remember how mark portrays them it's it's not in a good light it's 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 people that want to destroy jesus you remember in chapter three that after he he in their view blasphemes the sabbath they meet with the herodians so they can destroy him well, he would have been privy to stuff like that. He would have been, uh, he, he would have known not only about Jesus, but he would have, he, he would have known his miracles, but he would also have known that, you know, that here is a man that um, is on the outs with the religious. But it doesn't really matter to him because something else is at stake. So he shows his desperation and in the fact that he was, he, he was a ruler of the synagogue. He had a name to uphold. He had a reputation to uphold, but it doesn't matter. You know, uh, the fact that Mark even calls him Jairus says something about this man. It, it, it says that, you know, uh, because Mark didn't name people, he didn't name the, the, the demoniac. He, he rarely names anybody in his stories, but he names this man. He has a lot to lose. He comes, you can see his desperation and that, and that he implores Jesus. This is another word for begging. You know, do you remember the demons begged Jesus to go into the pigs? The townspeople begged Jesus to get out of there because they was ruining their livelihood. And, and, and the man healed from the demon, he, he begs Jesus to be with him. Well, here, here's some more begging. And he's begging for his daughter. This is why he is desperate. His little daughter. This is, a, this is a word that means she's around 12 years of age. She's, you know, 12 or under. We know from later on that she's 12 years old. And, and this is his little daughter. His, his probably his only daughter is about to die. And you don't have to have children or a daughter to understand what this man must have been feeling. But it does ramp it up when you have had children. Can you imagine, fathers, mothers, that your daughter, your only child, is about to die? What lengths would you go through 
to save them. He's desperate. This man is anxious and desperate for his daughter to live. So he comes to Jesus. He comes to this healer that that had come across the other side of the sea, and he must have probably heard about Jesus. And he comes to him, and notice what he asks for. He says to Jesus, Jesus, come lay your hands on her. I'm begging you to do this. Actually, I'm imploring you to do this. Come lay your hands on her, and that she may be made well. Now, this, is, this phrase is repeated three times in this story, in this set of stories, that she will be made well, that I will be made well. Jesus says, go in peace. I have made you well. Uh, and, and so in that repetition, we see Mark is trying to tell us something. The, the phrase, uh, she will be made well, is actually uh, the word for saved. It's, uh, it's the Greek word sozo, uh, that she may be saved or delivered from this illness. Uh, another word that, you know, the noun uh, of that uh, verb is salvation, soteria. And, it, you know, if you're a theological nerd, then you'll see that, that in that is the, the word for soteriology. It's the doctrine of salvation. And Mark is not giving us a full soteriology. He's not giving us a full doctrine of salvation. But there's something here. Jairus is asking for his daughter to be saved. And he, he, he's speaking more than he knows. He just wants her to be healed from this disease. And, and Jesus, he knows that Jesus is probably the only one that can do that. So he comes to him and he asks, please save my daughter so she might live. You notice what Jesus does in verse 24a. He went with him. He doesn't, he doesn't stop and give Jairus a lecture on what Jairus actually needs. He doesn't say, look, your daughter's illness is just secondary to what you actually need. Like your, your heart needs to be healed. You actually need to be saved from your own sins. He doesn't do any of that. He just goes with him. He he goes with Jairus, this desperate, anxious man, and he is on his way. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's an interruption in this story. There's an interruption to a, a desperate man that needs that that longs for his daughter to be healed so she'll live. And, and time is of the essence, actually, right now. And, and you can, you can kind of hear it in his voice as he's imploring him, Jesus, come with me. And all of a sudden, a woman interrupts Jesus. He interrupts the whole, she interrupts the whole story. And, and, and she's desperate herself because she herself needs healing. And as they went, you know, Mark tells us that a great crowd follows him and thronged about him. They were just all over him. In verse 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she had said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turns about in the crowd and says, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be healed of your disease. 
here the the crowd is impeding someone who needs to get to Jesus and be saved. Here's this woman. She's she's been unclean for 12 years. According to Leviticus 15:25, she was ritually unclean. There's any any menstrual bleeding, if there's any bleeding after the menstrual period, then then Leviticus says you're unclean, you must stay out of the city, you, you must stay out of the temple, you must stay out, you must stay away from people, there's no touching, there's no nothing, there's only isolation. And this is what she was experiencing for 12 years. She was an unclean woman. And you might ask, how desperate was her case? Well, you know, there were, there were four, sort of four aspects to this. I think the text kind of is, is telling us that there was four aspects to her desperation. She, how was she desperate? Well, she was spiritually desperate. She had no other help but to be cured of this disease before she could re-enter the, the spiritual life of Israel. You can see that in verse 25. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She's, she's isolated. It, it'd be like the coronavirus going on for 12 years, and we never get to meet together. We, we never get to sing songs together. We never get to hear in person the gospel and how it's, how it's going in each other's lives. She's 12 years ritually unclean. You know, and then in verses 25, uh, 26, it, you know, 26 says that she, she had suffered much under many physicians. That word suffered is the, is the same word that Jesus will use when he describes what is going to happen to him in Mark chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 9. When he describes to his disciples, the, the, the Christ must suffer and be handed over to the Gentiles. He must die and he must raise again the third day. It, Mark uses the same word. This was a this is a real suffering. This was a physical suffering, much like what would happen to Jesus. She had suffered much, and she had suffered under many physicians. You know, uh, she was going she was going to physicians, people who were supposed to help her, but could not. She those who were supposed to be able to, but couldn't, they were supposed to heal her and, and had, they just didn't have the tools. They, they didn't know how they, and maybe you've been in that spot before and you, you've gone time and time with the doctor again and they diagnose you and they re-diagnose you. And, and at the end of the day, you, you come to the conclusion with how far medicine has advanced. It's, it's not the cure for everything. And the physicians in those days had far less than, than we did, and, and they tried. It, it, it doesn't mean that they were uh, that they were um, they were trying to bilk her out of her money. It, it doesn't mean that you know that they were just jostling her around. It, it, it just means that she suffered, and and she could get no help from those who were supposed to be able to help her. She suffered spiritually. This is how desperate she was. She suffered physically. She also suffered economically. You, you notice that she spent everything she had in verse 26 and got no better. She, 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 she spent all that she had. And all, she, who knows? The story doesn't tell us. Mark doesn't tell us. But maybe she had to beg for food or she, you know, maybe had to be on, on some sort of uh, welfare program but she didn't have anything of her own and she was desperate and she could do nothing to save herself and no one else could do anything to save her. And the text tells us that she did not get better, but only grew worse. So there was, there was not only spiritual, physical and economic suffering. There was psychological suffering too. And you know, some of you know how that is where, where maybe you even got a diagnosis, but there's just no cure. Kind of like for the coronavirus. There's just, we really want a vaccine, but it's just, we just don't have it yet. And science can't save us. As great as it is, medicine can't save us. Our own families can't save us. We're spiritually and physically, we are helpless to do anything for ourselves. We're desperate, just like this woman. 
That's how she was desperate. But how was she faithful? You know, in 27 through 34, it talks, it continues this story about this woman that she had heard reports of Jesus. You know, faith comes by hearing, the Bible tells us. Faith comes by our, through our ears. So we live in the age of the ear, not in the age of the eye, though, though you would think it's opposite. But the Bible tells us the, the way we come into the kingdom is through our ears, through hearing the gospel and then believing it. That was what Mark really tells us with his disciples is that, you know, he calls them and they come. He calls, they come. Same thing with Levi. They, he calls, they come. Uh, and, and Mark is, is sort of building this case about faith. That faith comes through hearing. Verse 27 tells us that she heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Because she thought, if I can just touch him, I'll be made well. She, she hears about him. And this is how faith starts, brothers and sisters. It's, it's by hearing. And so someone has to tell. Someone, someone has to get out the good news that there is this one that can heal. Notice in verse 28 we, and through 34, we go on to see that she's saved by faith alone. She, she thinks, actually, that the touch of his garment is going to heal her. If I can just touch him, I will be healed. But the story goes on to tell us there's something different going on here than what she says. In verse 28, we see her mindset. She, she, just, she just thinks, okay, if I can go unnoticed, if I can touch his garment, he's powerful enough. Maybe he's God. And if he is, his garments are going to be full of power. And if I could touch that, somehow I'll be magically healed. And you notice the phrase that she uses. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I will be saved. Same thing Jairus is asking for. If I can touch, I'll be saved. Be saved from this illness. Verse 29, it looks as if, as soon as she touched his garments, immediately, the flow of blood dried up. She, she was healed. She was clean from that day forward. And she actually felt it in her body. She could feel this healing inside of herself, that she was healed of her disease. And then the story doesn't stop there. She's, she's not only just experienced this euphoric time of, of healing and all that must have gone on through in her mind. She's, now I can return to normal life and now I can be made whole and have peace again in, in society. And just as immediately she was healed, so immediately Jesus turns about in the crowd and says, who touched my garments? There's a tone of reproach in this. There's a, there's a tone of, uh, of uh, why did you do this? And at least it was perceived because we know the woman comes in fear and trembling and tells them everything. And, you know, this is a... This is a reminder that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is truly man. And as a man, he was like us. He didn't know who in the crowd actually touched him. Even though his divinity knew it, his, you know, his, uh, his humanity didn't, didn't know everything um, uh, all at once. We know that because the Bible tells us Jesus is learning things. And in either way, he, you know, as God, he could have, he could have called out to this woman. But uh, there's something in this that's tender. He's, he's calling out. He's asking questions. He's, he, he's inviting someone to come forward. And his disciples, they're, they're, just, they're just a little dense. They, they don't really understand what's going on here. And his disciples said in verse 31, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Verse 32, Jesus is inquisitive. He, he sort of ignores the disciples, and he just says, um, who, you know, he, he, he just looks around, and, and he looks for the person. 
who had done it. His, his eyes are going out and he sees. And it's in this moment, in this reproach, in this turning, in this looking, that the woman comes to him. She knows she's been found out. She knows that at one time she was unclean, but then she just got healed. And, and what would all of that mean if she had touched a clean person? If she had been in the crowd and, and, and not able to keep herself from touching people, how many people had she made unclean? And she comes and she makes her confession before Jesus. Verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And we see in this that, you know, um, in this true uh, picture of what faith actually is, the right response to Jesus, she comes to him and tells him everything. She tells him her, her sins. She tells him, she tells him exactly what she had done. It's, it's a moment of confession. It's a, it's a moment of, of faith and repentance. And you notice Jesus' response to her. She, I, I should mention again, that she, like Jairus, falls down before him. He falls imploring, but she falls in fear and trembling. He falls in begging for his daughter. She falls down confessing the whole truth. And he says to her, he gives her a different kind of healing. He says to her, daughter. This is the only time this particular word for daughter is used in the, new, in the Gospels. The only time is for this woman who responds in this kind of faith. She says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your, she thought, if I can touch his garments, I'll be made well, and then I could go. Then I, I, I'll go unseen, and I'll be clean, and I'll be healed. And he says, he's correcting her. This just tells me that uh, we don't have to have a perfect faith, a perfect knowledge of Jesus or salvation in order to be saved. What we have to have is a wholehearted trust in our hearts in the promises of God. That all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. He says, your daughter, your faith has made you well. It's, it's faith that has saved you. Same word. Your faith has saved you. It's a faith. It's a, it's a, it's a new kind of faith. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a feeble faith. It's a, it's a not full of knowledge. It's, it's, it's just trusting in God with what you know. And it's her faith that saved her. It's a trust that the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. Friend, I just want to let you know um, that it is not the size or quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. It's, it's how great the object of your faith is that can do anything for you. It's not your faith in faith. It's not your faith in your own belief or in your moral goodness. It is in Jesus Christ alone who is God, who is the Messiah, who gave up his life for you. And faith happens to be the instrument that God uses to save. God, you, you remember the solas of the Reformation. We are saved by Christ alone, grace alone, through faith, by grace, through faith. Grace is what saves us. And faith is that instrument that, that brings it to us. It's the, it's the instrument that brings it along and, and gives us that, that uh, trust in the promises of God. It's what brings the grace to us. And it's, it's all of God that does all of that. God even gives you the faith to believe. But Jesus says it's, it's actually her faith as well. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This word is, you know, it's the, just a normal word for peace. But I, I believe what, what Mark is trying to tell us, he's, he's telling her, go in peace because you've been made whole, both 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 spiritually and physically. 
I've not only healed you from your disease, I've made you whole as a person. Go, go and live in peace. And that's what Jesus, that's how Jesus is enticing us to believe him, right? We talk, I've been talking a lot about spiritual disciplines and the means of grace of reading your Bible and praying. Those aren't the things that make God happy with you. God is trying to entice you with his person, that he is man, truly man and truly God, that he is your high priest, that he is the one that will save you through faith alone. He's trying to entice you to get to know that one through Bible reading and prayer and community, through meditation, through Sabbath. He's trying you, he wants you to know him. He's enticing you with his, his goodness and his kindness and his peace. Most religions tell us that it is the opposite, that Jesus will be happy with us if we do good. If we're, we're saved by our, our moral goodness, Christianity says, no, you're saved by grace through faith, period. And Martin Luther does, you know, I, I remember Martin Luther ha has said that uh, we are saved by faith alone, but a, a faith that saves is never alone. So it brings along good works, but it is the fruit, not the root of our justification. We are saved by his kindness. And she becomes a model of what faith is. But I wonder, what happened to Jairus? Did you forget about him? Did Jesus forget about him? You know, in that, I think Mark is, wants us to feel that. That as we're desperate, we come to Jesus he makes Jairus wait so he can save somebody else. He, he allows the interruption. And maybe you're feeling that very thing right now in this time of isolation. Or, or, or maybe it's something else. Maybe you've been waiting for a husband or a wife or a child or a job. And, and Jesus has, has just made you wait. You feel like the heavens are brass and he's not answering your prayers and you just think maybe he forgot about me. But he returns. Mark returns to Jairus. He re he, Mark returns to the story because Jesus hasn't forgotten. But you could imagine Jairus's not only irritation, but his, his, his desperation you know, he, it's, it's, it's turned into something worse. Because you see in verse 35, while he was still speaking to the woman, there came someone from the ruler's house, from Jairus's house. And he had an announcement to make. And it was a death announcement. It's a funeral announcement. Jairus, you're, I'm sorry, but your daughter's dead. And his worst nightmares have come true. His worst fears have come true. And I wonder what that is for you. You see, you, you've been trusting in Jesus, but he has allowed your worst fears to come true. He's made you wait. The death announcement comes. What are you going to do? How, how will you interact with this one that you thought could heal your daughter, but he doesn't care enough to, to brush this woman aside? My daughter's dying, Jairus would tell Jesus. And, and you wait? What is this all about? And of course, yes, your, you know, uh, your delay has made my daughter die. At least that's how I would be feeling. And the announcement comes, why trouble the teacher any further? What can be done? Your daughter's dead. No one can raise the dead back to life, so stop bothering him. Yes, he's a good man, but who can raise the dead to life? In, the, in verse 36, we hear, but overhearing what they said. And, and the word actually implies that he overheard it, but he ignored it, which is so cool. This is, this is what a king does. This is what a king who has all power, who rules over death, this is what he does. He hears a death announcement and he ignores it. 
Jesus ignores it. He looks Jairus right in the face. He looks him right in the eyes. He says to this ruler of the synagogue, this religious person, do not fear, only believe. See, the interruption, the interruption was allowed because it, it, it was an object lesson for Jairus. Jairus had just seen what real faith looked like. This woman, she came bowing, confessing. She's told him everything, and she believed in Jesus, said, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jairus had just experienced that. But will he let the fear overtake that? Will, it, will he let the, 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 the birds of fear pluck out the seed from the soil? And, and, and will he o- let them overtake his, his faith, what he can believe in? And Jesus is saying, don't do that, Jairus. Only believe. Isn't Jesus kind? Isn't he good? This is a religious person who is part of, part of the elite who would want to kill Jesus. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Only believe. Your worst fear has come true, but you don't have to be afraid. It reminds me of the covenant promise that Jesus, God said, I will always be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Don't be afraid. You have my presence with you. Even in the valley of the deep darkness, even, even the shadow of death, I will be with you. My rod and my staff, they'll comfort you. Don't be afraid, only believe. The sheepdogs of grace and mercy will be chasing you down all the days of your life, Jairus. Don't be afraid, only believe. And I don't think he said it just for Jairus, because there's others involved in this, as, as Mark is painting this portrait. He, he, he shows, like, in the background, there's, there's some people following him. And it's verse 37. He, he doesn't allow anyone else to come but Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Probably because the house was too small. We don't know. But we have this inner circle of Jesus that is following about, that gets to see the you know, the inner workings of Jesus's life. This is sort of how discipleship works. We take people with us. The, you know, the people that want to run, they, they run with us. And uh, just, I just want to say as a pastor, the, the, those are the kind of people I, I'm going to be taking along with me, the people that, that want to be near, that want to learn, that want to, that, that want to follow, that want to be doing. And Jesus is doing that. Peter, James, and John, they come in and they've just heard Jesus say, don't fear, only believe. And maybe their minds went back to the storm and the demons. And uh, maybe there's still fear in their own hearts. And, and, and Jesus is not only telling Jairus, but he's telling them and he's telling you, don't fear, only believe. They came into the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion and people weeping and wailing loudly. And, uh, you know, this was, a, this was a common practice in that time that, you know, when someone died, you would immediately, apparently, you would hire professional mourners. And this is, this is what was going on here. You'd, you know, a, a family with moderate means was supposed to hire a couple wailers and a flute player. That's what the scholars tell us. And seems to be what's going on here and these professional mourners are here and they're wailing loudly and it just it just seems you know it it seems so it seems so removed from actual lament that's going on Uh, and here they are they're wailing and jesus is asking them why are you making commotion and weeping the child is not dead but sleeping and these mourners, they, they, show, they, they show their unbelief. You know, this, there's no empirical evidence, Jesus, that anyone could raise someone from the dead. Listen, we're professional mourners, so we're around death all the time. We know when someone's really dead. They would have known this child stopped breathing, no longer lived. But Jesus says she's just sleeping. We have no reason to believe, well, what we have reason to believe is that what Mark is telling us is that death is just like sleeping to Jesus. This is what kingdom power really looks like, that, that uh, the, the king can come and he rules over life and death. He's given it after all, and, 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 and to him, death is 
just like sleeping. This is too much for, you know, the empiricist. This is too much for the rationalist, and they laugh at him. The professional mourners would take money with one hand. They would pretend to cry and mourn, but they would laugh at Jesus on the other hand when he said he's going to raise her up. She's not dead. She's sleeping. I'm, I'm going to call her out of her sleep. So Jesus' response to them is he puts them outside. He, cha- he takes Jairus, Jairus's wife, that's the, the little girl's mother and father. He takes his, his, his three companions, Peter, James, and John, and he goes in to where the child was. And notice again, this is all being done by touch. Jairus wanted Jesus to come lay hands. The woman comes and he touches. And now he does take her by the hand. And he says to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. What a kindness of God. He's He's just tender with those he should be tender with. He's the perfect kind of elder. He's the perfect kind of pastor. He's... He's coming, and he, and he says to this little girl, arise. Just, hey it's, hey, it's time to wake up, little one. It's time to wake up. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking around. For she was 12 years of age. She was born around the same time the woman with the, the issue of blood started having her disease. She's 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Everyone in the room and everyone who heard about it. But Jesus strictly charged them, don't tell anyone. And he says, give her something to eat. It's time to get up, little one. And it's time to have breakfast. It's time to have a snack. And Jesus, with all this power and glory, can walk into a room with all of the kindness of, hey, little one, it's time to get up. And all the power of trampling over death and sin and hell can be in the same room. And, and, and do you know what? This little girl whose name we do not know had to follow him. She had to obey his command. And so will you. When you put all of your hope and trust in Jesus, when Jesus says, hey, little one, it's time to raise from the dead, you will obey him. And your body and your soul will be joined forevermore, just like his. And the reason Jesus can do this is because as fully God and fully man, he, he did go, he went to another room. He had a Passover with his disciples. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He carried his cross up a hill. And he, he stood there dying in your place. In your place, condemned, he stood. Isaiah tells us it's by his wounds we are healed. Jesus did that for you. But he didn't stay dead. They wrapped him up and they put him in the grave for three days. And and he triumphed over death in his resurrection. Colossians tells us that he put the authorities to open shame. We don't have to be afraid of demons. We don't have to be afraid of the spiritual world anymore. Jesus put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. And as he rose again, he met with his disciples. And do you remember what what he said to them? As he's sitting on the shore, he's cooking fish. He says, "Come, come, little ones, get something to eat. You need something to eat. And we need fellowship. I can't help but think Peter would have remembered this time as he, as he throws caution to the wind. He dives out and he goes and he eats with Jesus. And Jesus restores him, not only to fellowship, but as, as, the, 
as the chief apostle. He, he, he will be the one that, that, that goes and, and, and builds the church along with the other apostles. And he ate. And this little girl ate. This, short, this story shows us the desperation of humanity. My desperation and yours. And then our need to have someone to heal us, to save us from our sins, to heal us from, from the sin of, uh, of our first parents, to heal us from our own sins. It shows us the only one that can save us is Jesus. Jesus, through faith alone. It shows how he will save us, through faith alone. He's full of grace and mercy. He will save you too. And all, here's what he's asking. He's not asking for anything else. Trust him. That's what he says. Trust me. And he will say to you, daughter, son, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God, thank you for all the kinds of healing that you do, but especially our spiritual healing. We thank you that you, um, you offer it freely. You wake up dead people, uh, that you, you give life to those who are desperate and needy and unclean, and you give it forevermore. God, I pray that we as a people would believe that more and more, and we would be gossiping about it to everyone we know. God, that we would, we would believe it and te- tell it to ourselves and to our children and to our friends and to our neighbors and to our family members. God, please do it. Do this for your own glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.